our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We we praise and thank you that we could be here this morning and to sit and to hear your word preached. It is truly, as we have just sung this morning, it is our desire that you would be our vision, O ruler of all. That as we open your word today, that what we would see would be Christ. And so I pray that you would be present with us, that you would reveal yourself to us through the preaching of the word. And I pray that we might receive this word by faith to trust you, Lord, and to walk in the freedom of obedience that we have only because of your sacrifice that was given for us, that we might be new creatures in you. We thank you and we pray this in your name. Amen. John Newton, in speaking of religion, he said, the religion of some people is constrained. It's, it's, it's bound up. And then he uses an illustration to describe that. He said, they are like people who take a cold bath, uh, not for pleasure, but necessity and for their health. He said, they go in with reluctance and they're glad when they get out. Now, you probably could relate to that unless you like to take cold baths. I don't know. But you also may know people like that, that their religion's a lot like that. You know, they go to church with reluctance, but they're glad when they get out. But he goes on and he talks about uh, what true religion is like. But he goes, religion to a true believer is like water to a fish. It is his element. He lives in it and he couldn't live out of it. You know, and and. Hopefully that's our attitude today as we we come to to God's word. Well, last week we saw that James commanded his readers to be not just merely listeners to the word, but but doers of the word. And you, you see, really, from verse 18 on, James has been emphasizing the word of God. His readers were in need of strength to face the trials that were coming their way. And James knew that there was strength available and in God's word. And James was reminding his congregation that God's word had already manifested its strength in their lives in the salvation that they had received when they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed. And he wanted them to know that it was ready and able to manifest that strength again as they faced the trials that were in their lives. But he wanted them to understand that they needed to appropriate the word of God. They, they needed to read it. They needed to hear it. They needed to receive it and to apply it. In other words, they needed to devote themselves to the taking in of God's word and living it out. <coughs> Excuse me. It's sort of like breathing. We breathe in, we breathe out. And in, so, in, in many ways, it's like that with God's word. We take in that word but then we also live that out. The word of God is, is strong and it is able to cause us to stand, but it will do us no good if we don't avail ourselves of it. And James wants us to see here that this attitude of, of living by God's word is, is really not an optional matter. We, we cannot ignore these things and still regard ourselves as having truly come to faith in Jesus Christ. Our religion, as James says, is worthless if we, uh, if we ignore taking in and living out the word of God. 
We, we see this, if you turn over to chapter 2, we're going to be looking at this a little bit more. But chapter 2, verse 14, James sort of sums this idea up. He says in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Or, or skip down to verse 18. In the middle of that verse it says, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So, so true faith, true religion manifests itself in, it, in outwardly and public actions and expressions. It, it, it does no good to simply say that you have faith in Jesus Christ. There, there has to be evidence to back up that claim. And in a person who God has changed their heart, there is such evidence. But the problem is that just because a person displays outward, observable religious activities in their lives doesn't mean that their religion is true, or as I've entitled this sermon, that it's a living faith. It doesn't mean that that's just the case, because we know that even in James' time, Phariseeism was, was alive and well, that uh, you know these Pharisees had such a piety or religion that they gave themselves to the outward obedience of the law. And yet, you know, as, as Christ describes these Pharisees, he's, he's, he describes them as those who honor God with their lips, that they offered God deeds that were good, at least as they defined goodness, maybe not necessarily the way God defined goodness. And while they heaped up their good works, at the same time, they neglected the weightier matters of the law, such as justice and mercy and, and faithfulness. And so their hearts were far from God. Their worship was nothing but the rules taught by men. And so the Pharisees thought their outward obedience uh, to God's law would earn them favor with, with God. And, and many people looked at their lives and they're like, I want to grow up and be like them. You know, they, they respected the Pharisees because they, they seemed to have such a, a genuine uh, heart of a love and devotion for God, but we know through Christ, who gives us sort of an insight into the true nature of their heart, that really they were people who really didn't desire to please God as much as they sought the approval of other people. And so sometimes religious activities lead people away from God rather than closer to Him. And in fact, this word religion that's used here is used in a negative sense in the places it's used in the New Testament. It's only used like five times. Three of the times are used here in, in these verses. And then once in Acts 26.5 and another in Colossians 2.18. And, and we see sort of that, that negative uh, aspect of religion in Jesus' words in Matthew 7 Verse 21, when he says, you know, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In other words, didn't we proclaim the word of the Lord? Didn't we preach in your name? Which that is looks like a very impressive uh, thing to do. And then he says, and, and did we not cast out demons? Did we not confront God's enemies in your name? And, and did we not do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus says, and then I declared to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So, so we see in James that true religion, that, that a person who has genuine faith in Jesus Christ, you know, that their faith would entail the outward publicly display of obedience, but so does religion that is unacceptable to God. So how do we know if our obedience and our service to God flows out of a genuine faith as opposed to merely a religious attitude? Well, James uh, shares with us uh, what that genuine outworking of faith looks like in the life of a believer. So he gives us here three proofs or three signs of, of true religion. He shows us what are the works of a heart that's been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, first of all, in verse 26, that true religion tames or controls the tongue. It controls or tames the tongue. Look at verse 26. Now, now James states this negatively in this first verse, but we can take the, the um, opposite to, to be the principle. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So, in other words, a person who has true religion controls his tongue. It goes without saying that, that all that there's all forms of, of unrestrained speech, you know, in our midst. And, you know, you may be a person who struggles with your tongue. You, you may not. But I think most people oftentimes do struggle with that unrestrained unrest speech, whether it be in swearing. It could be uh, expressed in lying or telling off-colored jokes. It might be bragging about yourself. Or, or gossiping, or slander, or malice, or, or, or many, many other ways that we do that. But all of these are evidence of a proud spirit and an unholy attitude of our hearts. And anyone who talks this way and imagines that they're right with God, as James says, deceives themselves. They really don't see themselves as clearly as what they really are. And it is true that the tongue is difficult to control. I mean, I think it's interesting that James talks about bridling the tongue. Now, I think when we think about that, what do we all think of? A horse, right? Probably. You know, uh, James says that the tongue is like a powerful horse, which can take us on a wild ride if we're, if we're not holding those reins tightly. And, and one commentator even put it this way. It's sort of a silly way to put it. But he says, we have a horse in our mouths and it's seeking to gallop out of control. Now, like I said, that's sort of a stupid little illustration, but I think it'll probably stick with us as we think about our tongues, that it could be like this huge beast that's very powerful that's trying to run out of control. And, and we see this when our tongues are allowed to run loose and say whatever pops into our minds. And, and James knows this, and he addresses this attitude of the tongue throughout his epistle. I mean, even already in verses 13 and 14, he talks about you know, how we are so tempted with our tongues to justify ourselves in our own sin. You know, to make ourselves seem like we have no blame on our part, that it's all everybody else's fault. The way that it's expressed in verses 13 and 14 is when someone's tempted, they say, oh, well, that's God that tempted me. You know, not taking recognition that really we're tempted because of our own desires that sort of drag us away. Or if you look at chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, which we'll look at next week, you know, sometimes our tongues can be very flattering or they can humiliate other people. And James talks about that 
with those who flatter the rich and, and humiliate the poor uh, with their tongue and with their actions. Or look down at verse 16 of chapter 2, and you see people who make just sort of careless uh, speech. You know, they're not careful in the things that they say. And so like in verse 2, verse 16, there's someone who wishes another person who's in need to be well, and yet they don't do anything to meet that need. And so the words that they speak really mean absolutely nothing because it's not backed up by their actions. Or, or chapter 3, and, and that's going to be where we hit the, the mother load when it comes to the tongue. And we talk about that uh, chapter 3. But chapter 3, verse 9, uh, James talks about the tongue that praises God one moment and yet curses people at the very next moment. So there's sort of a duplicity there with our, with our tongue. Or, or the tongue is like a galloping horse when we slander uh, others or we judge them and condemn them. We see that in chapter 4, verse 11. You know, when we're talking bad about other people, we're, we're analyzing, right? That's what we say. We're, we're just analyzing what they said. But actually, it's a, it's a heart of judgment. And then we could go on, and, and, and Paul, James isn't the only one that talks about the tongue. Uh, Paul does as well. You know, 2 Corinthians 12, 20, Galatians 5, 19 and 21, where he talks about the works of the flesh. Uh, but especially in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 through 32, Paul talks about that, the tongue, and he says, Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths. But, but why does James use the tongue why use the tongue as a proof or a sign of our faith? How does that tell whether our faith is, is genuine or not? Well, because Jesus said in Matthew twelve thirty four, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And, and then the verses before that, Jesus is talking about trees and fruit. And he says, you know, there's a tree that's standing there before you. And you want to know what kind of tree it is? How do you do that? You look at its fruit. If there's apples on that tree, guess what? It's an apple tree. If there's peaches on that tree, guess what? It's a peach tree. And he says, in, in the same way, you know, you can tell whether a heart has been made new by the gospel of Jesus Christ by the words that come out of that person's mouth. You know, if a person's heart is unregenerate, if it's still captive to sin, uh, where everything about that person's life is about them, where selfishness and self-centeredness rules the day, then you will be able to tell by their words. Because their words will be angry when that person is not allowed to do what they want to do. Uh, their words will be full of bragging and boasting to others uh, so that they will know how great that they are. The communication that flows out of that person's mouth is an expression who rules the heart of that person. But likewise, if a person's heart is regenerate, if they've been born again, if they've been made new by the gospel of Jesus Christ, born again by the Spirit, where everything about that person's life is about Christ, where love and grace and mercy rules the day, then you will be able to tell by their words that their words will show that other people are more important than they are, that the tone of that person's words will be kind and they'll be gentle. The communication that flows out of that person's mouth is an expression that they are gradually being made over in the image of Jesus Christ. 
You know, and we know that that doesn't happen right away. So, you know, the person of genuine faith will fall into sin from time to time when it comes to their tongue. You know, we all do that. I mean, every child of God speaks inappropriately from time to time. But what James wants us to see is that the one who truly loves the Lord Jesus Christ is not habitually the person of James 1.26. It's not that that's where they live all the time. Because a disciple of Christ is consciously striving to bring his, his tongue in subjection to the word of God. You know, our sanctification comes over time, right? You know, as the spirit of God works in our heart and helps us to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, it changes us. It changes our actions, but it also changes our speech as well. And brothers and sisters, I would encourage you, if you are a person who struggles with your tongue, and I'm that person, I'm with you. You can pray for your pastor, if you would, you know, that my speech would be honoring to the Lord. But if, if that's something that you struggle with, sometimes you might get discouraged uh, in that battle because the tongue is such a strong force. But I would encourage you to stop and to look at your life. Go back 10 years, go back five years, go back one year. I don't care. But go back to a point in time in your past and, and just think about what your speech was like. And then look at the use of your words now as you interact with other people. And then I want to ask you to ask yourself this question. Do you see evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and a deeper understanding of the gospel that is transforming your speech? Do you see that? Do you see evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and a deeper understanding of the gospel that is transforming your speech? Do you see the work of God that's happening? And I think it's important for us to look at that in the midst of, of that battle of trying to bridle the tongue. Because sometimes it can be such, like such a, a daunting task. You know, we need to understand that the evidence of sanctification, that is progressively dying to sin and living for Christ, at least when it comes to the tongue, is, is to see a change in our words that flows out of a heart that's being changed by the Holy Spirit um, in the lives of, of those in which he is working. So, so true faith, true religion, you know, tames or controls the tongue because it comes from a heart that's being changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ as that person is being sanctified. But also true religion loves those who are in need. Look at verse 27. Religion that is pure, and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, in the Old Testament, um, it, it's the same idea, but the, the phrase is slightly different. It might talk in some of your translations about the fatherless and the widows. But it's the very same thing that, he, that he's talking about. And this is something, the, the, this, the orphans and the widows or the fatherless and the widows always seemed to go together because they were the defenseless members of society. And unfortunately, there are always those who are willing to exploit the defenseless. But God tells us that he protects them. Uh, we read in Psalm 68, verse 5, that God is the, fatherless, the, the father of the fatherless and protector of widows. And God commands his people to show kindness to them as well. I mean, you think back to the Old Testament law and what God commanded his people. He says, when you're out in the fields and, and you're harvesting your crop, if you drop some on the ground, don't pick it up. 
Leave it there so that the widows and the orphans and others could come, the aliens could come, and they could pick that up and that could be their food. Or he says even in Deuteronomy 24, you know, let's say that you bundled up a, a sheaf um, and, and you had this grain stock and you bound that all up and you stuck it down and you walked away out of the field and you go, oh man, I forgot that bundle. Don't go back and get it. Just leave it there. Because that's for the widows and that's for the orphans. And he even says in Deuteronomy 26, verse 12, that some of the um, tithes of Israel were given to the widows and the orphans to provide for them. So uh, care for orphans and widows is a sign of genuine faith uh, for several reasons. Uh, First of all, because kindness to them is a pure kindness. Now, what I mean by that, being a pure kindness, is that because those who help widows and orphans cannot expect to receive anything tangible in return. They can't pay you back because they don't have any ability. They are so destitute that they really have no way to give back. So it truly is an act of mercy, which sort of brings us to the second reason why this is uh, an evidence of a genuine faith, because... When we care for the defenseless and provide for those who don't have the ability to provide for themselves, we are really reflecting the character of God, right? I mean, did God not show us great mercy? Huh? Did he not? He did. What a merciful God he is. Now, how are we to care for them? You know, how are we to um, um, care for those that are in need? Well, Look at what James says. He says that we are to visit them. Now, the word visit there in the Greek doesn't mean the same thing that we use the term visit. You know, when we think of visit, we mean stop by and see somebody from time to time, right? Stop by and, and spend some time sort of talking with them or listening to them. But really what this word means in the Greek is it actually means to look after them, to give relief to them. It sort of implies that there's a great need, there's a burden there that they can't bear and they need someone else to bear that burden so the whole scope of the ministry of mercy is really in view here although it's not so much the official diaconal work of the church that James is talking about as much as the personal love and care of individual Christians for each other I mean there is a place for the deacons to care for, for others, but there's also a sense in which we as individual Christians are to love and to care for others that are in need. Now, what might this look like at Kirk of the Plains? Well, one thing it will mean is to be attentive to the needs of others around us. As I said earlier, <clears throat> it's often characteristic of our fallen human nature to either ignore those who are in need or to exploit them. I mean, maybe you've experienced this. You know, you're sort of, you're, you're driving down the road and you see somebody that's holding a, a homeless sign, you know, and so you sort of sit in your car maybe like this so you can't quite see them as well or, you, you know, put your hand or, you know, whatever. You just sort of try to ignore them. I mean, that, that's sort of our temptation. But praise God, he does not treat us this way. You know, I think of the words of Romans 5.8 that says, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God was aware of our need, and he met that need even before we knew we had that need. And if God is so gracious and merciful toward us, is it not appropriate that we should bear the family resemblance and show the same grace and mercy to those in need? 
But in order for us to do that, we must uh, we must see their needs. But but I would also say this: we should not we will not only need to see their needs, but we must be willing to sacrifice and to meet those needs, knowing that we will receive nothing in return. Knowing that we will receive nothing in return. So, what are the needs that are around us? Well, it might look like uh, caring for an elderly neighbor or maybe someone in your family who is elderly. It, it might be a Christian couple adopting a child. You know, it might mean reaching out to an unwed teenage mother who is scared and confused and just uh, taking time with her and giving her comfort and sharing the love of Christ with her. It might be taking a homeless person to McDonald's and, you know, instead of just giving them a few bucks, actually taking the time to take them to McDonald's and sit down and buy them a meal and eat with them and talk with them and get to know what their situation is. You know, it might be ministering to parents of special needs children. I know this week I... At, um, as I was out of town, I had the opportunity to meet a man who who had uh, several special needs children. And, you know, I just asked him, I said, you know, is there any way that in the church we could show the love of Christ to families that have special needs? And he goes, oh, yeah. He said, I could tell you. He said, I could tell you. There's there's lots of ways. And, you know, he said one thing about parents of kids with special needs is, is that they oftentimes need a break. They're just exhausted. They're just tired, you know. And so, you know, if someone would take their kids maybe during the worship service and and allow them to be able to worship and just sort of gave them a break. It's not that they didn't want to be with their kids, but it was just good to worship uh, with no distractions. Or it, he said another thing, and I thought this was really interesting. He said, just talk to the child that has special needs. So, you know, kids... Think about this. What if a family came into our church, came through those doors, and they were pushing their child that was in a wheelchair, and and that child couldn't even talk? Maybe they have even tubes in their mouth, or you know they might look different than what you would expect. You know, and, and you might be tempted, kids, to sort of pull back. But this man sort of you know reminded me. He said, you know, it's important to not only greet the family but to greet that child as well. And he said it's really important for the kids to greet that child and to talk to them and to let them know uh, that they are important. He said they need to know that they belong to the body of Christ and they're not outside the camp, uh, to use the Old Testament language. Instead, they need to see tangible expressions of our theology that says that they are special because they are made in the image of God. And so it's important to talk with them. And, and this man actually shared where with one of his sons, there was a kid that came up every Sunday and talked with him. You know, and he said, even to this day, his son still talks about that kid who took the time to come and to step out and to make himself vulnerable and talk with him. But, you know, it's, it's not only special needs parents. It might be single parents that come in our doors as well. Maybe they're, they're, they're tired. You know, they're trying to be mom and dad and to take care of everything. They're struggling to make ends meet, working hard, and yet trying to spend time with their kids and stuff. You know, all of these things. You know, I don't know how the Lord is going to do it, but brothers and sisters, we need to be open. 
we need to be open to see how the Lord may be giving us opportunity to, to show how the gospel has changed us by reaching out to those who are in need. But finally, true religion is also um, means that we seek to be unstained by the world. Look at verse 27 again. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to keep oneself in, unstained by the world. To be unstained from the world is to maintain both personal and, and moral integrity. It, it refuses to allow the world to set the standards for our beliefs and for our conduct. Now, when James talks about the world, he's not talking about God's creation out there. Obviously, he's instead using that word to refer to the system of thought, the, the system of values that often contradict what God has revealed to us in his word. And, and so that's why James says in James chapter 4, verse 4, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. That is, it's antagonism with God if we're friends with the world. And then James goes on and he said, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know, that's how serious this is if we give ourselves over to doing that. But it's the world system of thought and values that can sort of stain or maybe some translations might say pollute uh, our thinking and our speech and our, and our actions. Uh, many who profess to be Christians show that they've been stained or polluted by the world. You know, they've set aside the teachings of God's word uh, to then begin to entertain uh, the world view of the world, you know, to, to look at that and say, you know what, so why is it again that abortion is, is wrong? Why, why is it wrong for me to sleep with my girlfriend or my boyfriend before I get married? Or why can't we just live together? You know, I, I, it's, it's amazing how often I hear those who profess to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that are forsaking the clear teachings of Scripture that they might live by the world. You know, the authority for folks like this is oftentimes not so much the scripture, but it's sort of whatever the latest opinion poll is out there, whatever it is that people are speaking. And they find themselves talking like everyone else. They, because I think oftentimes they would rather run the risk of offending God than sounding different than their peers around them. And this isn't just for kids or teenagers. Even adults feel that sense of, of peer pressure as well, and we can get caught up. I mean, you think you hear the phrase, you know, sort of keeping up with the Joneses. That's sort of that expression of uh, taking our cues from the world as to what's important and what actually brings status and acceptance with our our neighbors. But you know, we need to just be careful uh, about this and and to understand that uh, you know God calls us not to give in. To the things of the world. I think it's interesting, uh, even as James is talking about earlier, about in verse 19, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to be anger, for the anger of God does not produce the righteousness of God. He goes, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. That, you know, as I said earlier, uh, I think several weeks ago, I said, you know, sin will keep you from the Bible or the Bible will keep you from sin. And there's a lot of truth to that, that as we give ourselves to God's word and as we hear that uh, spoken to us, 
that it will help us to to stay away from the things of this world. But, you know, there was a time when Christians considered it essential to be different from the world. But the, they believed that only by showing that they were different, that they might have the opportunity to share the gospel with those that comes around us. But actually, that sort of flip-flopped today. And even many churches today are trying to attract people of the world by being like the world, you know? And the worship services are even conformed to be, you know, sort of seeker-friendly and to, to be so that anybody off the street can come in and just feel comfortable, you know, and, and rather than understanding that we are called to be holy as He is holy. That our God is a God who, as He came as the God-man to this earth, you know, lived His life without sin. You know, as, as uh, James says, he said, Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Brothers and sisters, this is in a nutshell what Christ's calling is for us in Christ. It is the practice of pure and faultless religion. It's not, though, that we are to be pure and faultless. Uh, you know, because we can't. Even in our discipleship, even as we're growing in our faith, oftentimes we are not pure and faultless. But it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is the purity and the faultlessness of the implanted word in our lives. Not only as we heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and we came to faith in him, but as we trust his word as, the word, as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and we rely upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ, it changes us. It changes us. And, and, it, and it affects us in every way. So our response and faith in Christ is acceptable to our Heavenly Father because what Christ did for us was acceptable for our Heavenly Father. So Christ's righteousness becomes ours. And it's that righteousness that breaks out into our lives. You know, and into a vibrant spiritual devotion, bearing fruit in a sanctified tongue. It also uh, bears fruit when active love reaches out to the real needs of others. And also, as we seek to walk in holiness, uh, not being polluted by the things of the world, but walking in obedience to Christ. That is the religion that God has for his children. That is the religion of a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you look at your life this morning and the things that you say and the things that you do and the things that you don't say, what does it reveal about the condition of your heart? What does it reveal about your religion? Is it a false religion of just external obedience and yet still doing what you want to do? Or do you see the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart that is changing your life? Has your heart been changed by Christ? If not, I want to talk to you today after the worship service. I definitely do. But if you are here today and you see the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, oh Lord, that is such a wonderful opportunity for us to worship the Lord, to exalt in His name, right? To see that he has taken us who are not worthy and he has made us new creatures and he has given us a new way of life and he is making us like himself. And so let us glorify him. You know, let us not keep it to ourselves. 
Let it come out in our worship. Let it come out in our actions. Even let it come out as we tell others about this great hope that they could have too, that Christ would work in their hearts as well. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads and and have a time of, of meditation upon the word this morning. Father, we thank you for your word that was preached this morning. And I just pray, Lord, that your gospel would show its evidence in our lives in so many ways. If there have been ways, God, that we have shrink back, whether it be, you know, we have cuddled up with sin and we've wanted to live our Christian life, but we've also wanted to hang on to our sin. Or maybe, Lord, we've, you know, we've we've seen those people in need and we've really not been compelled by the love of Christ to go and to minister to them because they're just too messy. We just don't have the time. We've got too many things going on in our lives or, God, this is going to be too hard. I pray that, uh, or maybe, God, it's been our tongue. It's just been out of control and, and more guiding us. Uh, Lord, I, I would pray, Lord, that you would help us to come to realize uh, the, the great love that you have shown to us. And may we, may we, as we understand your love, be compelled by that love to go and to share with others. And Lord, if we are already doing these things, Lord, and I, I do see that in the midst of our people, I pray that they would be compelled to do so even more so, uh, to love others as you have loved them. Make us bold, God, as well, to share with people the reason why we do these things, uh, that we might share the hope of Christ with others. Uh, Lord, we just thank you, and we pray these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.